Now I invite you to pray with me and to pray for me. Lord God, this morning, take my lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and speak to them. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence and we invite you to bring conviction to our hearts through the living word that you will initiate healing and transformation in our lives. We pray this all for the glory of your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've probably heard this saying before. Denial is not just a river. Okay, good. I'm glad you got it. Denial is a word that has multiple meanings. Denial can mean asserting something is not true. You deny it. Like, for instance, if Bob Baldwin wanted to deny that he ate the last cookie. (laughs) Denial. That's one meaning. The second meaning is the refusal of a request. Turning that same example around, Bob asked Prudence for a second cookie, but she issued a denial. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. Denial for this sermon falls into that second category. The state of being without something because it was denied. Whether you've denied yourself of something, you're refusing your own request, or something else or someone else is denying your request. Now, considering something else denying your request... In our Western American culture, it tends to not go well when a person is denied their request, denied what they want. Whether it's a person or whether it's a circumstance that keeps someone in our society from getting what they want. Think about the last time you were at Publix and your favorite product was out of stock. Perhaps you asked someone, can you go find this? Perhaps you insisted they must have something in the back. This happened to me recently because sriracha could not be found anywhere. There was about a six-month denial of my need for sriracha. There was a shortage of peppers. Now, there are other srirachas, but they aren't the real one. It's like ketchup that's not Heinz. It's just something wrong with those things. There's only run sriracha. It's back in the stores now, finally. But people are not to be denied on the internet. Bottles of sriracha were selling for upwards of $50 to $100. No joke. Some of the bottles had been opened and partially consumed. Would you like to buy this? I'm not kidding. How do Americans tend to react when their favorite or most desired product or let's be honest, whatever they desire at any particular moment, what, what, what's, what happens when that's denied? Well, they respond. There tends to be a reaction. They complain. They attack. I'm trying not to say you here. It might be too personal. There's belittling of employees at stores and on telephones and through email. What do you mean you don't have this? I can't live without this, whatever it might be. You must have some. If I give you $20, can you find some? 
in dire circumstances, even our refined Western culture. There would be arguing and maybe fistfights. How many of you remember Black Friday sales before COVID? People were not to be denied. They pushed each other, they trampled one another, and they fought over the final products because they were not to be denied. We are a culture that refuses to be denied, to be denied what we want. This attitude tends to overflow into our personal lives. When we seek to deny ourselves something, even for good reasons, Maybe it's a restrictive eating plan or due to medical or health demands. The doctor said you must deny yourself smoking or drinking or eating certain things. Or fill in the blank why you might deny yourself. In Lent, you might be denying yourself something to remind you to pray. But you know what I'm talking about. You seek to deny yourself something but then your mind, and in some cases, your body, your flesh, it does everything in its power to convince you that you deserve it right now. This just a little bit won't hurt you. If I was giving up sriracha for Lent, which I couldn't do that. Sorry. Well, just have a little bit. What's the big deal? It's a conversation in your mind, an argument between you and you. <laughs> you who desire to deny yourself, refrain from something, and you, your flesh, or you, just your, your, your body cravings, think smoking or alcohol or other things. You say, I'm going to deny myself, and then you say, no, you need it. And there's an argument in your head. Why is it that the you that wants the best, that wants to be healthy and live longer, is rarely the winner of those arguments? Well, I think partially it's because many human beings have weak resolve. May as well just have it. Now, I don't know the deep psychology and anthropology behind this, but I believe it's part of the fall, part of our fallen, sinful, broken nature that our mind can be divided like that and argue with itself. Now, I want to take a deeper step now and go beyond sriracha and things of that sort. We're not just considering cookies now. I want you to consider sin. As a person with faith in Jesus, seeking to follow after God, you want to honor him and his desire, his best. But the temptation for whatever it might be that's outside of his plan, that's not good for your soul. It's so desirous, it's so enticing that in our heads we want to honor God, but one time should be okay. God will understand. God knows what I need. Even more disappointing, you might think, it's okay, God will forgive me again in all of your internal rationalizations or your external rationalizations to others. No, really, I'm okay. In essence, you forget who God is. You set him aside. You take over the throne again. You like the God that's love, that puts up with whatever that you do. You don't like the God who demands everything from you. 
You don't like the God. You don't like God when he asks you to deny yourself. That's not as much fun. In that rationalizing, in that convince yourself loop, you forget that your sin wounds God. He's saddened. He's hurt. He's grieved by your sin. Sin separates God from you. It puts a barrier between you and God. Between God and his beloved son and his beloved daughter. He's grieved by sin. And God can't just overlook sin the way we might overlook our own desires. Someone must bear the consequence. The holy God demands payment for sin. And if you read the Bible, he demands payment in blood. God's covenant with you in Christ by faith. That means rescue from the consequence of eternal death. The consequences of sin is death. And we are rescued from that by faith. And that's the good news of the gospel. Faith in Jesus yields forgiveness of sin. Now, why is that? Why, if we believe in Jesus, are we forgiven? Well, because he paid the price. He took on our flesh. He died. That's good news. Faith in Jesus provides one with an eternal kind of life now and eternal life after death. It's not just at the end of life. He gives you new life now if you believe in him. And then there's the battle within yourself. If you believe in Jesus and have eternal life, your believing in Jesus' self desires not to sin and to honor God. And your fallen sinful self argues and tempts. Life in Christ, life following Jesus is not easy. Following God, living as his man or his woman, it's costly because God demands everything. Now, wait a second. You might be thinking, wait a second, Bill. God is love and he loves everyone. He welcomes everyone. God loves us. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And included in that covenant of faith is a demand. And it's not even in the small print. It's in the really big print. It's clearly stated that God be first and God be on the throne if you would follow him. That you will love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. There's a demand. He does love us, but there's a, there's a demand and ask to be on the throne for us to deny ourselves. Following God is costly because he asks for everything. We see this in our scriptures today. In the story of Abraham and Isaac, you have to understand the context of what's going on as, Abraham's, as God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's long-desired, long-anticipated, beloved son. How much so? In Genesis 12, when God called Abram, not yet Abraham, he was 75 years old. Sarah was a year younger. And we read Sarai was barren. 
How long were they infertile? If they were 74 and 75 there. Well, Abraham, Abram's dad was married at age, or had Abraham at age 70. So even if you say just five years, I can tell you from my own life, five years of infertility was forever. It would never end. That's what we experienced. How long they were infertile, I don't know. But God promised to make Abram a great nation. Your descendants will be as numerous. And then 10 more years go by, and there's nothing. Genesis 16, 16 tells us Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born to Hagar. Ten years after the promise, they take it into their own hands. There must be a different way. God must have a different plan. They take over the throne again. And then, it's another 14 years until Abram's 100 and Sarah's 99 that God renames him Abraham and promises the birth of Isaac. How long they waited for this child. In asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, God helps Abraham to remember who God is and God's covenant with him that God is the one who provides. He essentially denies Abraham his envisioned future. When he says, you're going to sacrifice Isaac, as long as Abraham believed that was true and that was the only thing and he had to obey God, He had to be struggling with, well, what then? How long was he denied? You notice in our reading, then Abraham, or it says, God told him to do it. Abraham rose in the morning, and then on the third day, Abraham saw the place from afar. So at least three days, Abraham was thinking, God's asking this, I need to obey, and I don't like it. On the third day, haven't we heard that somewhere else before? We'll get to that. God takes it away as Abraham lets go. And then God provides again. No, don't raise your hand against this child. He, miraculous, he miraculously provided Isaac. And then when Abraham said, yours, I will let go. God miraculously provided the ram. He helps Abraham to take his eyes off of his beloved, who easily could have been an idol to him, his son, and to place his eyes back on the Lord who's on his throne. Literally, it was said, the name of that place is the Lord will provide. Abraham had to know that. God says in this interaction, don't worship God's provision. Don't worship what he gives you. Worship God alone and entrust everything to him. Let go. Look at our reading from Mark chapter 8 about Jesus. It's on page 5. By this time in Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 8, Jesus had healed many. He had both calmed the storm and he had walked on water. He had fed both the 5,000 and the 4,000 miraculously. He had done much teaching. The disciples had a pretty good idea that this is no ordinary man, no ordinary teacher, no ordinary rabbi. 
And in Mark 8, 27, before our reading, Jesus asks his disciples as they're walking along, what do people think of me? What are people saying about me? Who do the people say I am? The disciples answered, well, some think you might be Moses. Some think you might be Elijah. Some think you might be one of the prophets. Then Jesus asks a direct question. Who do you say that I am? Peter's convinced. And in true Peter form, he's the one to speak up. I imagine he didn't speak up quietly. But boldly, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. And in that reading, Jesus doesn't deny. He charged them not to talk about that. But Peter was right. That's where our reading picks up. We pick it up in verses 31 and 32. I'm just going to read here. You can follow along. And he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after these, after three days, there's the three days, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Think about that three days. Isaac was three days in the tomb and then was brought back. There's, a, there's not a coincidence there. That's real. Verse 32, Jesus said this plainly, <laughs> that I must be killed and after three days rise again. Plainly. I don't know how much easier it is to say. He said it so they couldn't miss the meaning. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why is Peter rebuking him? Well, Peter had an understanding for what the Messiah would mean. And that understanding, that vision would have been shared by all of Judaism for centuries. They expected a conquering king to rescue. This wasn't something just Peter thought. This was a shared vision. The Jews had dreamt and visioned the Messiah's arrival for centuries. This would have been held by many. That can't be true, Jesus, if you're going to die, so I rebuke you. That can't be true. And Jesus then denies Peter's understanding. There's a denial. Jesus denies Peter forcefully. Get behind me, Satan. In the Hebrew, Satan is the accuser, the adversary. Get behind you, my adversary, is what Jesus said to Peter. Then, verse 34, look at that. Then Jesus rebukes Peter and then calls the crowd. Everybody else come around. He gets them all around him, not just the disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It literally means take up if anyone would follow after me, that literally means, or would come after me, that literally means to follow. In the Greek, it's the same word. Jesus says in the Greek, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the same word. Jesus denies what they expect, a conquering king, and boldly challenges them. He goes on to say, verse 35, for whoever would save his life would lose it. Don't save what you think is right. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. He clearly warns them. To miss this point could lead you to be ashamed of me. And if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. When you're ashamed of someone, you deny knowing them, right? There's the denial. When you're ashamed of something, you deny it happened. If you deny me, you may be denied in the end. To follow me, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Or you may deny me and lose it all. It's a strong word. First, turning to Paul's teaching. And this is where we're going to wrap up. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 8. Paul essentially says suffering is a gift. Embrace it. I don't like suffering. I want to deny that. I don't know about you. That's what Paul's saying. Look at verse 32. Well, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, if God has not denied us, who can be against you? Verse 33. He he, he, his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then he gets into legal language. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He tells them it doesn't matter who brings charges against you. He doesn't say charges won't be brought against you. He says it doesn't matter when it happens. Who does it? It doesn't matter who condemns you for following Jesus. You will be condemned for following Jesus. He says, don't fear. God alone is on the throne. God alone will judge and justify. Verse 35. Shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul? Paul writes, shall anything separate you from the love of Christ? Shall anything separate you from salvation? And he mentions Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, not happy things. Those things will happen to you, but they will not separate you. And then, if you're looking at our reading, verse 36, as it is written. You know where that's quoted from? The Psalms. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament, quoted more than 60 times. He quotes from the Psalms. Write down Psalm 44. Go and read it later. Psalm 44. In that, the psalmists, who are the sons of Korah, they complain. We feel rejected, God. We feel forgotten, God. We've been faithful, they say. In their own minds, they've been faithful. We've been faithful, and yet you forget us. Would you do something about this, God? That's what they're saying. And the complaint continues in verse 22 of Psalm 44. For your sake, we're being killed. That's the way it reads. For your sake, we are being killed. 
all the day long were being killed, were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And the psalmist ends asking for reprieve. Awake, as if God's asleep. Awake, rouse yourself. Come to our aid. Paul quotes this, and then he turns the tables, because the Jews would have known that context. Okay, God's going to awake and change it and take away these persecutions. Paul turns the tables on the church and he declares, don't do that. Even as that is happening to you, as you're persecuted and charged and condemned and, name it, even as that happens to you, it will happen to God's people. Even so, he's with you. His presence by his Holy Spirit will love and comfort you. Salvation is the ultimate gift. It's eternal life now, new life. God's spirit and his love in you and then his fruit through you as you follow him. His peace guarding you. Lent, this season of Lent is a reminder of God's call to all his people. Don't deny yourself of the benefits and the fruit of the kingdom of God. Deny yourself of the things you're clinging to and let go. Jesus calls to you today. Love me with all that you are. Set aside your idols and let go. You can trust me. Let go of control. Love me first and then love others. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. That's God's promise to you. And that's the call of the season of Lent. As you're invited to slow down and consider your life, to consider where idols have moved in, as you consider the Lord's desire for you, what's he asking you to let go of? He may remove it, or like Abraham, he may give it back and let you keep it, but he needs you to let go. God asks for everything. Jesus demands everything if you would receive new life in his name. Take up your cross, give up your life, and follow me. Choose to live a life of denial to your sinful nature, and you will not be denied the glorious hope of the resurrection. Hear the good news of the gospel as we close. If you desire to follow Jesus, he asks for everything temporal. And he will give you everything in your new life now and in your eternal life. More than you can imagine. Submit it all. Submit your life to Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.